Welcome to Beautiful Botswana, the travel podcast, where we aim to travel around Botswana and learn about this wonderful safari destination, as we chat with experts, safari professionals and safari legends, as we share stories, recommendations and help you plan your Botswana holiday. which is the big one. Most podcasts do not make it past episode seven. So in being here today, we've already achieved something. Is a gentleman who's very well known in the tourism circles because of his antics on the dance floor, as well as his uh, infinite knowledge of safaris in Botswana. And his name is almost synonymous with safaris. He is also heavily invested in training and upskilling new, the next generation of guides in Botswana. Is bird fishing? What I mean, there's lots. That's your that's your cup of tea. There's so many future episodes we could talk about. <laughs> I love them all. <laughs> uh, so joining me today from Nataka Safaris and African Guide Academy is Grant Reed. Welcome, Grant. Thank you, Tessa. Thanks for having me, and uh, look forward to it. So Grant's joining me today to talk about mobiles and a mobile safari. For those of you who are not familiar with the Botswana safari offerings. It's you and your tent, and you may go wherever you your you may find a campsite, and wherever your heart takes you. And it's very different from a fly and fly out safari, as we discussed with Matt Copham. So a very different kind of experience. And I've asked Grant today to talk to me about the different kinds of mobiles and and why people should consider a mobile safari, who it's well suited to, and in general what he finds his clients really enjoy about a mobile safari. So thanks for joining me today, Grant. Uh, before we kick off in terms of talking about mobiles, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about your own personal experience and what brought you to Botswana and what's brought you to where you are now? Um, I, mean, I think that's probably an episode all in its own, but uh, <laughs> if you could maybe give us a synopsis and how you became, how Lataka Safaris came to be and, and how you got to where you are now. Well, I grew up uh, with a brother who was uh, very keen on nature. Um, my grandfather was an ornithologist and a herpetologist into snakes and birds. My father the same, so Brent and I are third generation naturalists. And um, I grew up in the hills of the Michalisburg catching snakes. And uh, snakes was the, the in for me. Um, and then from the snakes, I had egg eater snakes. So I would go and find bird nests. And from that, I also had snakes that would eat frogs. So I'd have to go and catch frogs and lizards. And I slowly became interested in all that stuff. And I spent more and more of my time collecting all the other stuff. And slowly through snakes, I. I developed a, an interest in everything um, and became a very keen junior naturalist. I became a guide when I was 16 years old uh, for the Wildlife and Environmental Society of Southern Africa. So my first guiding gig was when I was still in school. Um, I used to guide for the National Botanical Institute. And I always knew what I wanted to do. I always knew when I left school I wanted to be involved in conservation. Um, so I studied nature conservation, uh, worked in Kruger National Park. Um, and then I moved north. I moved up into Botswana in 1995. I started working for an amazing mobile safari company, Penduka Safaris, um, doing some incredible trips down in the southern um, Kalahari into places that still people just don't go today. I uh, had an amazing six years with them and then uh, Brent and I started Lataka in 2000, 2001. Um, so yeah, that's how I got to where I am today. And what brought you to Botswana at the beginning, in terms of taking you from the Kruger, from the work you were doing there, into Botswana? How did you find out about Botswana? Well, things changed in Kruger. I was there at the very unfortunate time when South Africa's politics had changed for the better, but the prospects for young white people in South Africa were not great. Um, um, but yeah, then the hammer came down, and one of the girls who I was training as a nightlife student said that there's this amazing company in Botswana, uh, there's a, an opportunity to guide there. I never wanted to get involved in tourism. I always looked down on tourism as, you know, those guys driving jeeps, etc. And I always wanted to be, you know, running around catching poachers and doing something meaningful for conservation and actually furthering uh, greater conservation in Africa. Um, so it was quite hard for me to jump over to the other side and become a jeep jockey driving around with tourists behind me. But I realized that I was being paid to do what I never had time to do. I could sit there for hours, and if I could 
wow my people with a butterfly. I wasn't chasing to a hardware store to get this and fix a windmill and get that and fix a fence. You know, I found that in conservation I was so busy driving around, always under pressure, always trying to get stuff done on the concession that I never really had time to appreciate the wildlife. And, you know, being paid to go out for eight hours, nine hours a day and just sit and look at birds and, and appreciate and listen to the sounds. And, uh, yeah, I, I really was very pleasantly surprised um, because I was, yeah, I have to say I was negative about going into tourism. And what, what made you stay? I mean, in a lot of cases, it's a woman. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we, we're very proud, Mount Woman, of our uh, ability to keep a man in the country. But uh, um, what was it that kept you, this made you decide that Botswana was where you wanted to stay? I think my profession and my, my passion for the bush and being out in the bush cost me far more women than anything else <laughs> in my life. Um, no, uh, I actually, I came up to Botswana for a year. I'd been offered a, a post up in Kenya, um, and I heard about this post in Botswana. So my plan was to come up here and guide for a year, and then go and work in a, in a lodge in Kenya on the Ulanana River. And uh, I just fell in love. I got to nine months of guiding here, and I realized I actually hadn't even seen the tip of the iceberg, and there was so much more to do, and just amazing people and incredible wilderness places, and I didn't really care what Kenya had to offer because I just felt like I, I can't expect anything to be better than Botswana and I was so I became so invested in just everything here and just the people and the culture and loved what I was doing you know there are very few countries that really do mobile safaris East African mobile safaris generally are more fly camps, long stay, tented camps that are put up for three months or six months. It's not really mobile, they move maybe with the migration, but the type of mobiles that we did and the freedom that we had, uh, going to different places and seeing different things and moving around, it, I realized was quite unique and it was something that I certainly wasn't done with, So, I, and I still am not. And you've only ever been then in the mobile sector in Botswana through your career. You've never done a stint in a lodge or... No, very early in my guiding career, I worked in a few lodges. I got very bored driving out every day and under the same marula tree would be the same three tessabi standing there, uh, you know, very limited in terms of route. Um, and mobiles, by the time you get back to the same place, it's a different season, you know, it's changed. It's three weeks later, it's hotter, it's drier, it's wetter. Um, and, you know, and we were doing mobiles also through Namibia and other places. So very often it'd be a month, two months, three months until I was back in the same place in Zambia or Botswana. So mobiles really give you an amazing opportunity to see a lot and experience a lot more. I've done a lot of private guiding through lodges as a private guide um, and the Botswana lodges are absolutely amazing. There's incredible places out there. I just don't personally as a guide want to be tied to any one 50,000 hectare patch of land. Um, I, I find it quite um, claustrophobic. Also, I think a, a mobile experience gives, gives a, a guest or traveller a similar idea to what we discussed with Matt about a private guide in that you're tying the pieces between the different landscapes together. Yeah. Where if someone says goodbye to their guide at Camp A and arrives at Camp B, there's a lot of starting again. There's yeah. a lot of redefining interests. And if you're doing that A to B to C with a private guide or you're going A to B to C by road on a mobile, you're, you're telling a much a story the whole way through the safari rather than it being pieces put together. And that's also, I think, what makes it a very different experience to a lodge safari. No, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. It's, uh, you know, if you're going to do a lodge safari and you actually want a guided experience, uh, you have to have a private guide. The mobiles allows you to do that without having a private guide. You know, if you're just a couple and you want to jump on a safari, you know, to have a private guide, private vehicle in the lodges is, uh, you know, there's a, a very small percentage of the world population that can afford it. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible experience if you can. But there is no continuity to the guided experience. You mentioned the word continuity, which I think is a really good word. I think that's exactly, it, it encapsulates what we're trying to talk about, that idea of continued relationship, continued um, understanding of setting, continued growing of the story. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, look, I, I think the, you know, continuity is incredible. It's not only a continuity of those things, it's also a continuity of the other people, new lodges, new managers, new chefs, new guests around the table, mm-hmm. uh, always new things. and. It's very easy if you drive in on a sighting to see which guests are in a lodge vehicle and which are in a mobile vehicle because the guests in a mobile vehicle are all leaning back and they're chatting and they're laughing. You know, the first day or two of a mobile safari is quite stiff. There's still social posturing. Nobody knows if they can make a little bit of a dirty joke and everyone's holding back a little bit and, and everybody's kind of trying to work out who is with them and how much they earn and, and where they fit in in the whole thing. And, and after three or four days, that just changes completely and everybody just becomes so comfortable. It's like traveling with family. And I mean, we've had it, obviously I've been guiding in Botswana for a long time, so I've had a lot of the same guests over, over the years. And a lot of the people I keep in touch with have never met the people they started a 10-day safari with. But 20 years later, a lot of the people that I'm guiding or have guided are now traveling to Antarctica with that family and they're traveling to Brazil and they're going all over the place because they create a friendship that is... Uh, is very deep and so you travel together as a family the waiter the campaign the chef the guide the guests you're all together you're all in it um, and there are no external disturbances there are no new people coming in um, and to the point that I can't bring an agent in on a mobile safari if that agent doesn't start the trip with us they, they simply can't come in because they're a foreigner and the entire vibe changes um, so yes that, that continuity is incredible and then I think, you know, as a guide, certainly that, um, that ability to have a canvas and you can paint and you can you fill in the gaps and you, know, you can relate on day nine. Remember those lion cubs we saw on the second day and I told you about their mother and how that all works? Well, now what we're seeing here is exactly the same. And, you know, that's what really blows people, blows their minds is the interconnectedness of everything, the ecology. Driving around and seeing a leopard, seeing a lion, taking a photograph of some sleeping cats, yeah, it's cool, it's nice. But what really, really gets people is that deeper understanding that when they can start to understand what's happening out there, that breeds that fascination, and that fascination is then what brings people back. And then, of course, by being mobile, you're on road, so you're not flying between places so you're seeing landscapes change you're seeing that transition between these areas rather than being put in a plane if you're me trying to close your eyes so you're not there it's like, <laughs> and then landing in a new spot and that is obviously also another ma- massive positive about a mobile is that you create you're seeing the transition in landscapes and you're getting a much deeper understanding of the area as an interconnected ecosystem yeah I mean, Botswana, like anywhere in Africa, any wildlife area, is, um, you know, wildlife hotspots tied together by marginal areas. And it's very important to utilize those marginal areas, and it's important for people to drive through them. And sometimes you can drive for an hour or two through Mopani woodland, and you will see next to nothing. But that next to nothing is as much a part of the story as being in the middle of, you know, a water hole with, you know, hundreds of animals coming down. So it, it is a much, um, it, it's a much truer picture and it's, I think people walk away with a much better understanding of what Africa's about. A lot of people watch Discovery Channel or whatever before they come over and they come up with this idea that everything is just like one kill after another and then they're mating and then they're climbing trees. And Africa's not like that. The people who film those documentaries spend two, three years of their lives doing that. And I think, I suppose, in a way, the mobiles is also a slower pace. I mean, do you, do you think it is slower pace than a lot of Absolutely. Life? You know, when you've got 10 days with a group of guests, you're not under pressure to show them a leopard, a lion, a cheetah, whatever, at that lodge. Um, so you're not chasing everything. You're not... You don't have to get in on every sighting. Um, and sometimes, you know, I'll hear on the radio that the guys have found the lions in the north. I'll go to the south. I don't want to see other vehicles, other people. I'd actually rather go off and find my own things. And if I don't find anything, still have an amazing morning looking at the, the little things and enjoying the birds and everything else. So there's definitely not the need to, you know, to bang the big five in in three days. And of course, there's no sense of somebody's waiting in camp for you to arrive back so you can all sit down and 
have brunch together because the vehicle's it. You, yep, you're in a group. It. You've got no one you're upsetting. Well, the so chef sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Chefs are temperamental when, worldwide. When the chef has spent the whole morning making an amazing meal and I come three hours late because we've been on a leopard sighting, I can sometimes see that I'm a little bit miffed. But, they, you know, that's why people come. Mm. You know, people don't travel all halfway around the world to the middle of Africa for the cuisine. I mean, the food is amazing, but it's not the focus. And I think any time, I think that's where a lot of luxury travel has lost the plot it, it becomes about the the wow experiences and the sundowners and like you know it's all these things in between that are really cool it's really nice but it's not the focus i would over my dead body leave a decent sighting to go back for a lunch or some kind of uh, cocktail in the bush or something and unfortunately you know the way the industry works is each one of these lodges are having to outcompete each other in terms of level of service and these people are coming from wilderness lodge and now they're in the great plains lodge and now you know it's it, they have to always try and up each other and, and you know for a lot of people they don't understand why they're there they don't understand that it's about the wilderness experience mm -hmm. and they love that type of thing now the surprises are fantastic, they're great, mm. but they shouldn't be at the compromise exactly. of a great game experience. Yeah. And Matt also chatted about that in his um, in his episode. He was saying how he just makes, if he his guests are serious wildlife fundies, they do days out and that's the best way you're gonna see something. This yeah. idea of early morning, late afternoon, when it's dry, it's, it doesn't exist, and there's ways of having great game viewing even in the middle of the day. So Yeah, I've seen some of the best things I've ever seen are in the middle of the day, and you're sharing it with nobody else. You have literally, you have what's on it yourself in the middle of the day when everyone else is lying in their tents and passing the middle of the day. There's incredible stuff still happening out there. Mm -hmm. So talking about the chefs and the food, in terms of a mobile kitchen, how do they... How do they do it? And I mean, you're going for some trips. I mean, you're going with ten days worth of supplies on the back, and and That's a bush kitchen. Yeah, and uh, and there's no resupply. So the chefs cook in a little. Um, it's a it's a tin box, I guess, a foot and a half long, and you know, half a foot high and uh, a foot wide. And they bake in there. They do souffles and do so it's what, cakes they put, and bread. Put coals on the lid. Put coals underneath. Coals on the lid. And it really is cooking, the cooking is an art form, it's not a science, you don't turn the oven to 180, you've got to know the type of wood, the coals, the ambient temperature, all of that, you know, affects, you know, kind of your baking speed, etc. But, I mean, the food that they turn out is unbelievable, it really is exceptional. Um, but that's not our focus yeah. um, but people really enjoy coming back to a good meal so you know there's a lot of different levels of safaris from really the the absolute basic mobile safari where you have just you know kind of very very simple meals to I mean some of the mobiles the, the high-end mobiles so we, we kind of sit in the kind of upper middle class of mobiles um, and some of the high-end mobiles are just, you know, the, the ridiculous. And, but then they have a proper kitchen. They're bringing in a proper oven, etc. It's not really what I like. I love the, the authenticity and, you know, people going into the kitchen and watching, the, you know, the bread coming out the oven. It's a pretty cool experience. Well, I think that is it. If you've, you, you're camping at a campsite, you spend your morning out there enjoying what's to experience, and you come back, and from... And blank campsite, which you know is blank because you, yeah. you arrived there with nothing, um, out comes so, like really good, comforting, great, nourishing food. And it's, it's part of that experience, even though it's not the main safari focus, it's part of that experience that becomes part of the story of why yeah. you travel meeting the people. I also think in a mobile you're going to get to know the people who are looking after you that much deeper because it's not just... A different waiter every meal or whatever you become more familiar with the crew who, yeah. who are with you no absolutely so i mean the, the that kind of leads back to that continuity uh you know the chef really does he comes every night and he'll announce a menu and gets to know everybody by their names and so there's a lot of chatting the same with the waiter and you know they people have an opportunity to become friends with you know some of the local people and a lot of them hook up on Facebook later and follow, you know, the adventures of our chefs and, you know, the guides and uh, the, the waiters. Um, so, yes, there's definitely a much, um, a much closer-knit uh, experience on a, on a mobile. The, you know, the lodges, while they have amazing uh, staff, in three days it's just not possible to build that uh, strength of a relationship. So, 
Um, you mentioned briefly the different sort of the scale of of mobile. They're, in my mind, there are two different factors. There's the there's the whether it's private versus a set departure. Yeah. Um, so can we chat about those that the differential between the difference between those two first? Okay. Um, what would a set departure mean? So set departures uh, run through to basically all the way through from the the budget to the luxury safaris, um, and it's. A lot of people don't want to just travel alone. Although they may be able to afford a private safari, they actually want to be around a couple, you know, one or two other couples. So most of your scheduled departures are running from around about four minimum uh, people to on the bigger safaris. Some some companies will take up to twelve people on a on a scheduled safari. And no one's ever leaving or departing those trips. They no. start in one place, end in another, and you get on it and you. That's go it. by road and you and you yeah. depart it. And you know, as a as a guide, as as much as a lot of people really like a private trip, it, it's the um, uh, the atmosphere on a on a trip like a, a scheduled trip with different people. The the whole sharing of different cultures and getting to know each other, the conversation around the table, everything is more interesting. Um, some of the worst trips I've ever guided have been just a husband and wife who've had enough, they've said everything they ever wanted to say to each other 30 years ago. It's like all of us after lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, you are just responsible for absolutely every iota of conversation. And, and you're creating all the energy it's, and it's, it's just, it, it's, it can be quite exhausting as a guide. And I really love those mixed groups. Um, you know, I've got uh, also some amazing couples that I guide that are nothing like that. But um, there's definitely um, more... Uh, there's more energy in a trip that's got you know a few different families or a few different couples etc um, single people I mean mobile is an amazing way for single travelers there's more and more people uh, traveling singles and because we don't invest in you know 150,000 puller or 200,000 puller building a room and we limit it to 10 rooms at our lodge we can put up a tent for somebody, you know, a single traveler. So, you know, very often mobile safaris are able to offer a single traveler a mobile without a single supplement. And, and that of is course huge. there's no air, the air charter company, the air charter costs for the supplements for single traveler are also exorbitant because yeah. to fly a single person from A to B is expensive. Yeah. So they've also got that advantage that they're not paying for flights. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then the private, what would a private mobile, I mean, is, is private not necessarily then restricted by any days, by any length of time? Is there a minimum amount of time you would do a mobile for? It becomes very expensive to do a mobile for less than three days because there's days of preparation, there's days of unpacking and washing laundry. So, you know, if, if that team's got a dead day either side of 12 days, in terms of the percentage of days that you've down for a year is much less. And if you're doing shorter trips, I mean, it, it basically is almost 50% of downtime if, you, if you're doing a really short trip. Um, and, and the drive in and the drive out is always much harder on the vehicles, etc. So, um, yes, doing a mobile for kind of under three days really doesn't make sense. Plus, you're not getting any of these benefits we've spoken about. You're yeah. not getting that continuity. Yeah. You're not building the rapport. You're not yeah. getting all So, typically, that. the shortest we do is six days. Um, and then that's usually a large mobile combination or people coming in from Namibia, Zambia, who are combining multiple countries that really only have six uh, six days in destination um, and then yeah we do we get quite a lot of people where maybe the husband would rather do a lodge and the wife's a bit more adventurous or vice versa um, so you do that sort of lodge mobile combo so you'll sort of combine you know six nights of mobile with one or two lodges either side and you know that gives people quite a nice taste of Botswana and whether you know if they want to come back they can do lodge again or they can do mobile they always can do mobile, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, you know, so private, a privately guided mobile is the top of the options. And yep. then very, within that, there are obviously different levels of luxury. Yep. You can have a privately guided mobile with dome tents, but that is still the most custom option. And then through to these, as you said, with full-on yep. working kitchens and, you know, yep. walk-in tents, ensuite bathrooms and the works. What, in terms of the accommodation options, um, you've got this 
luxury, uber luxury on one end, what are the different sort of levels that exist within the mobile sector that if somebody's yeah. interested in doing a mobile but they're saying, well, you know, what are the different options available to people so who are listening? I think what discerns mobiles, what you're really looking at in terms of categories, firstly, you've got participation in mobile safaris. You help with the camp, you help put up your tents. There's different degrees of participation. Some of them you help with the cooking, some of them you put up the tent, some of them you even have to put up the guide's tent. Um, you know, the, the, the super budget uh, trips. Uh, and then from there you go into non-participation safaris where you arrive and camp is up and you've got a team. So that, that in, a, in a broad, if you were to put it into two categories, that would be where you were. Um, and then in terms of luxury, I think for a lot of people, it's the bathroom, it's the toilet, that's it, you know, it's the, that's the biggest uh, change from, you know, it's, it's the biggest leap from the comfort of people's home. We all get used to sitting on a flush toilet and, you know, that's how life works. So if you're on a super budget safari, you don't have an ensuite toilet, which means taking your tent at night, your torch at night, leaving your tent and, you know, walking, you know through the lines and whatever obviously you're not walking through the lines but people listeners he did do the first <laughs> commas around the lines <laughs> didn't come through on audio <laughs> um so yeah you know but there's that there's that you know for some people that that's just scary leaving your tent at night and walking even if it's only 40 50 meters to a shared toilet um yeah, you're to gonna really consider that second glass of wine over dinner yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then, um, then you get the, the, the kind of ensuite uh, shower, ensuite toilet, which for a lot of people is, you know, kind of the minimum standard when they get past sort of 45, 50, and they want a little bit of comfort, etc. Um, those are not flash toilets. No, those are not flash toilets. So there you've got two, two options, really. One is the, the chemical toilet, which I don't really like, and the other is the short drop toilet, which instead of flushing with water, you just flush with ash and agricultural lime. So, and then the step up from there is the, um, you know, the, the very luxury mobiles where you've got actually a flushing toilet. The problem with those mobiles is once you get to the point of flushing toilets, you can't really move that camp in a day. So then you're breaking that up, going mobile and then lodge for a few days, which is not bad. You still got the same guide at the lodge, but you're breaking that kind of the continuity. So and you're not necessarily always traveling by road either. Yeah. Then you might be flying out or yeah. flying in. So so it becomes a little bit different from what we consider sort of like a, a true mobile, where you are just you with your group, your vehicle, etc. But a lot of people really love the experience because it is you know that luxury level, and for some people that's a minimum standard. I won't go without a flush toilet. And then when you talk tents, I mean, not all tents are created equal. No. <laughs> so, um, and I think the tents also vary through the scale. So in a participatory safari, it's a small little dome tent. Yes. Um, and then, and what's that, in a bedroll? Mattress a on bedroll the on the floor or maybe a short stretcher, uh, depending on the level that you've got. Um, yeah, so the dome tents are perfectly safe to sleep in. You know, you can't really stand up and move around and then you kind of crawl into them and... Uh, I can't imagine seeing you in a dome tent. Grant's an incredibly tall individual <laughs> with, <laughs> with long, long legs and I can't imagine you, you... You must have had some... They must have been in your past when you were a guide and you must have been given the worst tent and the smallest one. There must have been some interesting... I guided moments. for a company in Botswana, and I shan't mention names, <laughs> that gave me a guide tent that was literally, I think it was... Five Five foot two and my six foot four had to fit in there <laughs> and I slept so crumpled up and I woke up in the morning and I felt this hot breath on my face and I sort of didn't really work out I was still half asleep and I'd got my mag light torch back then we all had mag light torches and I turned around and I shone the torch and literally like 15 centimeters from my face was a lioness and she'd obviously been sitting there my head was against the gauze and because of the movement, because I was always touching the tent, this pride of lions had come around the tent and she was staring at me like this and just, I, I mean, it was one of the most terrifying <laughs> to I think I may have screamed. And um, yeah, literally right there was this lioness. I could feel the breath on my face. And you know, so, you know, in a, in a really small tent, a, a tall person can be uncomfortable. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so you can move from the, the small dome tents, um, a lot of the operators are using dome tents, use three meter dome tents which are really nice and spacious, still if you're tall like me moving around in them it's difficult. 
And then you jump to the mirror style tents, the you know kind of uh, which are high wall tents, so the walls go straight up, and you've got a lot more volume inside. Um, and those mirror tents can get quite voluminous when you with a you know super luxury operator. Mm-hmm. And of course, as you said again, with the toilets, the bigger it is, the harder it is to move. Uh, yeah. Move the more less maneuverable you are. Yeah. Um, and and so it goes to scale. Let's talk about the participatory. Is there an age cutoff? You'd say at which point somebody would no longer be comfortable in a participatory. No, and one thing I've learned with guiding is age means nothing. nothing. I've had I've had such sprightly seventy year olds on safari, and I've had people who at the age of fifty I thought needed to be put down. <laughs> um, it's yeah, <laughs> they're really in terms of age. It's uh, you you can't draw a line. If you were if you were to draw you, if you were to kind of draw a line in the sand, I guess you'd say 45 on on average. Um, after 45, most people wouldn't be comfortable on that. Um, and you might find people who no longer your interest level, it appeals to the younger, more adventurous types. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, I think um, it's, it's difficult to draw a line in the sand, but definitely younger people are much happier with the participation. It fits their lifestyle as well as their pocket a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're we seeing millennials now spend really big money on, uh, on trips and you know, really investing in long haul travel, whereas the, the generation, the baby boomers, the people I started guiding really only started you know, forking out for trips like that in their 50s and mm-hmm. even in their early 60s. So there's definitely a paradigm shift in, in, in travel. Um, so the stereotypes become a little bit more difficult to define with new generations coming in. In terms of talking about young people, families, is that something you're seeing more of coming on mobile? Is that something that has it always been popular for families? Is it growing in popularity? No, family travel is definitely growing in popularity. There's more people traveling now with their families coming. Um, mobile is the, the, one of the things that makes mobile so amazing is being out in the wilderness and no fences and just it's the intimacy with nature and unfortunately that makes mobiles not the right type of product for people who've got kids that are sort of under you know six seven years old. Um, yeah, it's no holiday for anyone if everyone's worrying about where little Jimmy's gone to. No, exactly. Um, so yeah. Uh, uh, Definitely family travel is, is big um, and mobiles are fantastic but just not for, for infants, toddlers and uh, kids up until about the age of six, seven when they stop making all those uh, lion attracting noise. <laughs> <laughs> As a bush person, I must say, I have only recently started camping in the bush with the four-year-old because mm. that's exactly it. I, I like my sleep and I don't want to have to be lying there worrying about who's we've attracted into camp with the screaming. So I, I fully can uh, appreciate that. If you're doing um, set departures, do you do family-specific set departures, or is it a matter of families and couples all mixed together? No, families and couples mixed. Uh, very often families will book out a mobile. Um, so, you know, it depends on the capacity of the mobiles. You know, a lot of mobiles, so, you know, our capacity for a, a scheduled departure is seven people. So it's so, not hard as a family to yeah, pilot if you bring a, multi-generational. Exactly. Um, or, you know, kind of pay for an extra seat or two, and, you know, for, for that privacy if you don't want another, uh, you know, another couple on it. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a very cool experience for a family. We generally recommend if there's one or two seats left, uh, you know, that people rather just pay a little bit more. It can be a little bit uh, overbearing if, you know, you've got a family of five and then you've got two other people. Um, it's like not a fair fight, really. Mm. But again, it must be a pretty cost-effective option for families when the alternative in lodges is private vehicles and private yeah, suites and all that. Be, yeah, you've got to be very careful. The one thing I always, always say to people is don't book a mobile based on price. Mobile safari is an experience. And there, we have people coming on mobile safaris that could afford to spend three years in the most luxury lodges of, of Southern Africa, but they do a mobile because they understand the experience. And in terms of experience for the right type of person, it is vastly superior to the lodges. And for people, many people who can't afford a mobile, it's just not the right thing for them. You've got to, you've got to want that intimacy with nature. You've got to yearn for that connection with the wilderness. Um, in order to be the right type of person for mobile. Um, so, you know, buying, it, it's definitely the fact that it's less expensive. If you're looking at the two and both options kind of suit you, you know, it, then it's obviously a huge bonus that you're going to pay a third of the, the price for a mobile than going to a luxury lodge. 
but never ever book a mobile just because it's a cheap way to see Botswana. It's got to be the right type of thing. You've got to be in for that type of adventure. That's great. That's a really great insight. Thanks for that. Um, in terms of understanding a little bit about where the mobiles go, can you draw a bit of a picture in terms of the map of where mobiles go and how, and how do you get to camp in, in Miremi or Savuti or wherever else you may choose to put up a campsite? The most popular route for mobiles is Mound through to Kasani and then finishing in Victoria Falls and then starting again in Victoria Falls and then coming through Kasani, um, Savuti, Kwai, Kakanika and then back to Mound. So that route up and down in a kind of northeast southwest um, is sort of the highlights package of the best of Botswana in terms of the, the parks where we have access to. So we, through mobiles, don't have access to private concessions. So we are operating in Moremi Game Reserve, Chobe National Park, Naipan, Central Kalahari Game Reserve. So we are operating in the public areas, but we have private campsites. So we stay in private Hatab or Bocha sites. Um, and so we're away from everybody else, but there are, the, you know, the, the general public have access to those parks. The fact that there is this difference between there's a public campsite, which is normally near some kind of government office, so it's yeah. at a gate or it's, yeah. at a, it's at a it's a regional office, and then in the middle of the bush there are these private sites, um, and until I really got to understand, and you know I came from a lodge background, that's how we met. You were training camp staff there, and that's that's how we got to know each other, but. Living in the lodges, I had no idea about this whole other world of mobile. <laughs> Very elitist. <laughs> and um, that idea that there are these other campsites, and um, for me, the perfect example of that is Chobi. Everyone sees Chobi as this congested, very, very busy place. Mm. But then, somewhere, how many kilometers that way is a yeah. spot you can camp? And no one else is there because yeah. they can't be there at sunset, otherwise they won't make the gate. Yeah. So this concept of these private campsites, I think, is one of the other things just to maybe go explain a little bit more if somebody's found, so far the idea of a mobile sounds totally up their alley, but then they don't want to be sitting in a public campsite or they don't want to be in an area where they can see somebody else's campsite. So yeah, through Moremi and Chobe National Park, there are uh, HATAP sites, which is the Hospitality and Tourism Association of Botswana, or the Botswana Guide Association, Bocha. Um, you book these sites, you have to be a, a member of the um, organization, and only one company can occupy that site. So it's a completely private site. And that is really what makes mobiles unique, is that that's what gives you the intimacy with nature, just being there, being immersed um, and nobody else around. Uh, a lot of people who come, it's it's strange, you know, people are sold this whole wildlife experience and they come here and they, they get sold the big five and they, they arrive thinking that, you know, every like our job every day is to see leopard and lion and this and that. And you know, they they're they're really quite pumped about this whole thing. And what really actually reaches into people's souls is the the tranquility. It's those times that you're away from everyone else and you're not looking at anything in particular. You're just smelling Africa and you've got the sounds and there's nobody else and that tranquility because people lead hectic lives. And I can go to New York City. I've got like three days in me in New York City and I have to leave and in a hurry and then go somewhere where there's no one. And I, you know, people that spend their entire year with that, that sort of humanity on top of them uh, when, when they arrive here, it's, it's the, the, the one thing that is not sold. It's one thing that people are not told about. It's very difficult to, to sell a sunset or it, no, it's not, sunset's the wrong thing because the sunset's only, you know, it's kind of a... that moment of yeah. tranquility and, yeah. and that, that moment of pause. Yeah. You just don't get it in the modern world. And so, you know, on a mobile safari, when it's just you and you're sitting around a campfire and you've got the stars above you, there's no other guests, there's nobody else, it's just your family, it's the, the people that you're traveling with. You have that in bucket loads. Um, and I think that is, that is something that is really undersold because people don't really know how to paint that picture for people and tell them why they're really going to love Botswana. And I think a lot of people don't know how much they miss that in their busy lives because your lives are so full that you actually don't realise how that moment of absolute tranquility, peace, uh, 
taking a big, big deep breath and just being able to be in the moment, how actually you miss that yeah. until you're there, until you experience it, and then mm. you go, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. yeah, and it's something that you have to be careful. You know, if you come on a if you come on a safari, don't pressure the guide all the time to go to every sighting. I have had better experiences with guides where we haven't actually seen the animal and the guide has gotten off a vehicle and he's looked at aardvark tracks and gotten us all off and explained to us what it was doing and how it was feeding than times where I've actually seen an aardvark run through the bush at a distance in a spotlight and it's a fleeting moment. A safari is about an experience and seeing an animal is a very small part of that experience. You know, it's um, chasing around after these animals is just it, it's a it's beautiful to to see a leopard and to see a lion and it's a magic experience but if you're not birding and you're not looking at dragonflies and tracks and all of that honestly you you haven't even scratched the surface and I think that one thing I felt when I was living that life all the full time and I was in camp and you'd meet um, travelers with different energies and different expectations the people who did not have a checklist and who took it easy were without a doubt the lucky ones. Mm. The guys who were pushing pressure on their guide and demanding and um, having their checklist at the ready were the ones who'd walk, who would see nothing. And then, of course, you'd have your quiet little moment of glee when the guests <laughs> were so gentle and happy with anything, would have this most amazing sighting. And you've just reaffirmed over and over again with these experiences of how so if it comes to the, the, when you're patient and when you're just grateful for where you are and just enjoying mm. it, that's when you're taking life slowly enough to look up in the tree and notice the, the leopard lying yeah. on the branch above guiding, you. Guiding is all about connectedness, being connected to your guests and being connected to the wilderness. And you simply cannot be connected to the wilderness while you are driving a diesel engine vehicle that is making a noise. As a guide, your senses are completely dulled. It's like you've got a blindfold on, you know, and it's when you're stopping and looking at a bird and you suddenly hear an alarm call, you hear something that you would have missed. That's the thing that takes your game drive on a 180 degree turn and turns a, a quiet morning. And, you know, you can have one of those, but you have it for yourself. You find it for yourself. The discovery is there. You track it. You look for it. You find it. That experience is worth a hundred times of driving in on other guide sightings and three or four other vehicles on a sighting and pull in to jostling. Snap, your, to snap your photographs and off you go. I think that's also another thing just to talk about is that based on where these campsites are, you're starting your day way ahead or way deeper in the park than the guy who's camped at the gate. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Moremi, for example, the three lodges in Moremi are, well, in the public area of Moremi are all clustered together, literally right next to the public campsite. Um, so in terms of Kakanika and Third Bridge, which share a greater area of Moremi, when you're in these sites, we get up, I mean, mobiles, you up and you are up. Because we're not a luxury thing and people are not waiting for, you know, the, the croissants to come out the oven, etc. You know, we get up, we have a cup of coffee, uh, you know, cereal, yogurt, etc. It's still dark. We get into that vehicle. It is twilight when you get into that vehicle, or it, it's just you know, dawn is breaking, and you're on those tracks. And you, you know, by the time the other vehicles get there, you've already finished tracking your leopard, and you are now well ahead of them. And that's kind of you know, as a mobile guide, you know, you, if you choreograph your game drive in the right way, you can very often miss the everybody else altogether because you're ahead and then you punch back through and you you just miss everybody else. You're stopping having a scenic coffee mid-morning at a nice scenic spot and they're all heading off to where you've spent the last three hours with absolutely no one else inside. Yeah. So yes, it, it, we certainly have, uh, it, for a large part of our game drives, we have an area that is to ourselves or possibly with one or two other mobile operators around. Um, but, you know, the amazing thing is the, the rapport between the mobile operators is fantastic. I mean, my guests have always loved bumping into the other guides because there's just such an amazing flow of information and, you know, camaraderie. You know, because we're all in it together, we're a long way from home. If you have a breakdown, you need the other guys. You need to have friends out there. So we all pass on information to each other. We all share um, information. So, you know, actually having a couple of other really nice guides around you 
doesn't detract from it and we all respect each other so you know call in on the radio and say listen guys I've got this I want 10 minutes on my own and then uh, I'm going to pull out mm. um, and you can in that way you know um, also share sightings in a way that doesn't impact on guests yeah and then um, in terms of you, you mentioned earlier you've got you sort of this highlights of Botswana that's tying the game reserves together yeah. any minimum time you would recommend somebody who wants to do true mobile not not necessarily fly and fly out but a true mobile experience looking at what's out there um in, in sort of in the marketplace for set departures yeah. what would you say that, that people should look for that indicates like a solid trip i personally like a trip where i've got three nights in the camp you know, your, your travel day on a mobile is a very relaxed travel day. So you leave in the morning, you get up, you have coffee and breakfast, and while you're having breakfast, the staff are breaking camp down. You drive out, and after a couple of hours of driving around that area, you stop and have a coffee and tea break, and then you start moving, say, if you're moving from Kakanika to Kwai, and around about 12 o'clock, you find a nice little hippo pool, and you set up lunch there, and everybody, you take the relaxing chairs, and people take their Kindles, or their iPads, or their books, or Blackgammon, or whatever it is, and you spend two hours there just chilling out next to a waterhole. So you're not driving all day, um, but you've got these sort of driving sections that are broken up, but you are still arriving in camp at four or five o'clock in the afternoon because you need to give the staff enough time to set up camp the other side and get the welcome drinks ready and have everything ready that side. So in effect, you have maybe an hour or two in that area in the, that late afternoon. Then you've only got the next day, and as a guide, one day in an area, you kind of, okay, well, there's leopards here, and she's doing this, and that line's there, but you're not really... You, you don't have enough information to really be able to kind of know. So my third day in an area is very often my best day, and I like that kind of feeling because, you know, if you're then into your second day, you've only just moved in the, the night before, and then you're into your second day, and that afternoon you're already thinking about packing for the next day. Um, so I kind of like that pace um, of sort of doing three nights, three nights, three nights. Um, I certainly wouldn't book a mobile. Um, personally, that is one night, one night, one night. Um, that to me, I just don't like that pace. And any particular distances that are just not realistic that some itineraries include? I mean, is there any sort of warning signs if they're trying to get you from Kikanaka to Savuti that you'd say, well, that's a bit far? Or, I mean, is there anything that you think? Yeah, Kikanaka to Savuti is too far. I think you know you've got to be you've got to be aware of the type of vehicle you're going to be travelling in. Uh, most of these itineraries are tried and tested. The operators are good. There, there are very very few mobile operators that you know are offering stuff out there that is irresponsible um, and unrealistic because you very quickly get a, a bad reputation. So I think understanding what you're in for, um, you know, our biggest moving day on a, on a mobile, you're moving from Savuti to Kasani, uh, which is a 160 kilometer drive. Part of it is on an open road, but you know, so long as you are prepared for that and you know what you're in for, it's absolutely fine. And you know, it's punctuated by tea breaks and lunch breaks, etc. So it's, um, yeah, I think it's understanding what you're in for and just knowing that uh, you, you are fit enough to go on a mobile, well, I say that, I mean, I guess most of our clientele are probably 60, 65, but you have to still be in a reasonable physical condition to be able to, to go on a mobile and really enjoy it. You can't be, you can't be struggling in and out of vehicles all the time. You need to be able to get in and out of a game drive vehicle um, you know, and spend a few hours sitting in a vehicle. Yeah, and sitting in a four by four vehicle, they're not yeah. always. The, I mean, they there's an art to the modern four by safari vehicle. They really are impressive, um, but they still are yeah. rough vehicles. Yeah. It's not sitting in a comfortable high uh, high end. It's not a high end vehicle, so you know there is a certain amount of um, yeah. of wear and tear on a person. Well, Brian, thank you so much. I certainly am feeling very itchy to get on a vehicle and spend a few days out there. Um, it's one of those experiences I've never had. But yeah, thank you very much for that. I think it's a really great synopsis and I hope it does. This resonates with someone out there who says, I had no idea that this was an option and that sounds totally like it's my cup of tea and that's exactly how I want to travel. And so are you ready for the snapshot session? Yeah, let's go. All right, I think I know some of these answers. So I, I hope you surprise me, but I think, <laughs> I think some of them, I might have an idea what the answer is going to be. So the first one, what is one most critical, most valuable to you piece of safari equipment? 
Without a doubt, my binoculars. Are, yeah. This question might have to be modified <laughs> in the part in the future because the answer is always binoculars, with very few exceptions. Can I put you on the spot and ask, other than your binos, what you would say? Other than my binos, sure. I leather man. <laughs> no, I could read that one. I was going to say it's that leather man, and it's got you into lots of trouble, but it's also got you out of lots of trouble. Yes, yeah, I'd save my bacon. <laughs> save my bacon a few times. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if I'm on a walking safari, my rifle. Um, but you know, if if I'm not walking, then uh, yeah, then my rifle. I actually prefer walking in the wilderness without my rifle, but uh, certainly with guests, I, I take it with me. And what I mean, we've as I say, a lot of people have mentioned binoculars. What's your reason for why binos? the most critical piece? Even when something's really close, you miss so much detail. When you get your binos on and you start looking, you know, if you've got lines lying, you know, three meters away from you, looking at the structure of the pores and the cracks in the pads and the whiskers, and there's, there's so much detail there. And a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, I don't need my binoculars, it's right there. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you just see incredible, incredible detail. And then, of course, I'm a bird nerd, so um, you know I love to pick up my binoculars while people are busy looking at stuff that I know well, and you know we've discussed it and chatted, and we're waiting for them to do something, and I just sit and quietly bird in the trees. Well, I must say, I think that the birders are the ones who always have their binos, and it's everybody else who needs to learn what the birders already know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, the second one. Which one destination in Botswana would you suggest no first-time visitor misses? I guess it has to be the Okavango. Um, there's there's incredible places, uh, you know, to include with that. But I think anybody who comes to Botswana that doesn't go to the Okavango will, you know, it's just such a famous place. It's a very unique ecosystem. There are very few endorheic systems in the world, um, and certainly none that look like the Okavango. So, yeah, I would I would say in terms of a unique ecosystem that is world-renowned, you just don't want to miss the Okavango. But I would, as a caveat, also say that you should try and get into one or two marginal areas as well. You know, put in something like the Makhari or somewhere where you just got the wide open spaces where you're not there for the game. And that's not maybe the one place you shouldn't miss, but you know, when you put together an itinerary, it doesn't all have to be jam-packed with game. Mm. And any particular spot in the Okavango that you would suggest? I mean, we we could keep. I mean, I think multiple episodes of the podcast will be specifically about the Okavango. It's such a vast area, so it's a hard, hard. Well, in terms of mobiles, we we have access to the Kakanika area, which is a really, really beautiful sort of central eastern part of the Okavango, um, a a part that's very difficult for tourists to access. Um, my favorite part of the Okavango is actually the uh, the Char Island area, uh, just below Core Flats. But you know that's boat, mobile, camping, mm -hmm. um, is the only way to get up into that area. That to me is my favorite spot, but not easy to access on and tie into an itinerary. But and then very, very specific yes, as an experience. Absolutely. It's not as broad as, say, yeah. like a Kanika experience. Exactly, yes. Um, the next one, sundowner tip, piece of advice, drink, how to have the, the best sundowner? How to have the best sundowner? Make sure it's a double. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, sundowner is a great time to. I mean, I love sundowners as a time to draw maps in the ground for people and to tie things together. Um, you know, you, it's really a nice time to clean up your game drive. Um, you know, it's nice to have a little bit of tranquility and a bit of quiet. But there's also very often when you're guiding, you know, there's there's little strands that are left kind of untied at the end. Um, so, you know, certainly from a guide point of view, that's what I like to do and draw some maps in the sand and you know, give people a better understanding of where we've been and what we've seen and, you know, this pride, where they came from and what they were doing, etc. Well, hopefully a lot of, my, I'm, I'm really, I'm hoping that I get um, guides and, and other people who are interested in tourism from Botswana and other Botswana who are interested in this, listening to this, and hopefully somewhere along there, there's some young guy who goes, I've never thought of that. Uh, <laughs> they learn from the pro. Um, all right, uh, one resource that you think every traveler coming to Botswana should know about? Well, a few weeks ago, I would have said 
probably Lee Guthridge and Tony Ruman's book on the Okabango. Um, Simon Byron commented on that one. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great resource. Um, I'm actually at the moment doing an app version of that oh, um, because that's a heavy book. It's an amazing thing, but if you're flying from lodge to lodge, um, it's very difficult. I don't think apps ever really replace a book. But when you are heavy with camera gear and clothes and traveling, etc., having you've only got twelve kilos for your flight between exactly. So yeah, I mean, at the moment I'm putting that together in, awesome. an, in an app form. It, it it is so rewarding when you're just sitting there and you see a, a dragonfly rather than it just being a dragonfly. Right, I've got a red dragonfly here. Okay, well there's only three that occur in this area. And you know, just picking up your binoculars, and that's when you get like really like get your your fingers dirty with nature, and that's that's the real experience. Um, so yeah, it's quite cool to have that, and it's nice to have a checklist of like the dragonflies and the butterflies and the trees and all the stuff that you've seen, um, so that when you go back, you can go and sort of have a look and you know Google them and learn more about them, and it allows you to relive your safari. Now that's a great idea, and this I think this of the five questions is the hardest one because there's not a lot of resources out there. No. <laughs> so I um, I think well done on creating something new, and Thank um, you. I'm, I I will let you know when one of my guests on a future episode references your app. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> that's when we know we sorted. <laughs> All right. So the last one, if you had a weekend to explore, uh, where would you go? If I had a weekend to explore, uh, there's so many places. It, it, are we, it, we're in Botswana. Huh? Northern Botswana. Northern Botswana. You're not allowed to go to Angola. It's only a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a place that I'd love to go and spend a weekend, actually, that's kind of come high on my list again, is uh, Nokata in the eastern Chobe National Park. Um, my episode yeah. with James Wilson, we, we discussed this, and he this is exactly this. He, he said exactly this. It's... Let no one say Chobi's crowded because yeah. there's Nochatsa. Yeah. Nochatsa, I mean, the, the entire Nguidzumba Valley that runs into Nochatsa, that 50 kilometers of dry riverbed and the eland, and just there is nobody else. Um, and it's quite spectacular. It's very different in terms of landscape to, um, to anywhere else in Botswana. It's not just flat and even. You've got this massive big valley that runs in there. And then when you get to Nochatsa, yes, it is flat, but it's also kind of different, it's more sort of half Zimbabwe, half Botswana, and it's always refreshing as a guide when you spend a lot of time in the in the normal tourist areas to get into somewhere, A, that there's nobody else, and B, that, you know, is visually a little bit different. Yeah, and, and unknown, it's yeah. back to exploration. Yeah. And is there, is there a campsite there? I know we talked, when James and I talked, we talked about... Um, the lodge, but is there a mobile? There are three mobile campsites okay. there. There are not a lot of mobile operators that offer Nukhatsa as part of a scheduled. In fact, I'm not aware of any that have it on their schedules. Um, but most mobile operators will add it into a, a departure if you ask them to, if their guide knows how to get there. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason I have that question in my five is because there are hopefully listeners coming to this who are not first time travelers who've done Nukhatsa and are looking for something that's a little bit different and unusual and answer <laughs> answer from a guy who's been to them all is Nokatsa, so that's great. Well thank you so much for your time Grant. I, I hope you've enjoyed this and I certainly have and as I've said before, um, there's lots you and I can talk about and definitely going to be talking about birding safaris going forward and um, all the best for whatever the, the, the wave of tourists we're hoping for arrives <laughs> and um, in the meantime, we have these beautiful places to ourselves to explore. Yeah, and I'm going to certainly do a lot of that. Thank you very much for having me, Tessa. It's been a pleasure talking, and uh, to everybody out there, uh, we look forward to seeing you in Botswana. Yeah, and um, I hope that somewhere out there, there's someone who's suddenly opening Google and saying Botswana Mobile Safari, because they didn't know about it before, and now they do. So thanks so much for your time. Like I appreciate it. Thanks, Tessa. <laughs> of Lataka Safaris and African Guide Academy. I hope you found this episode interesting and that it has inspired you to travel to Botswana. If you have never done a mobile and you do find it interesting, there are a lot of options out there and I hope that you have fun researching them and finding the perfect one for you. 
If it sounds like it's not the right kind of trip for you, well, I hope you've learned a little bit more about them. And I hope you've become more aware of what the options available to you are. Please keep listening for more episodes like this where we discuss the different types of safaris available in Botswana. My next episode is something totally different where I join Steve O'Meara and we talk about the Botswana night skies. Hopefully that also is something that inspires you and you learn something from that episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, particularly on iTunes if you use iTunes to listen because reviews really help my rankings and ratings. Share it with a friend or somebody else you know who's also passionate about Botswana. And thank you for listening and joining me on this journey. I look forward to taking one more step together.